Welcome to this podcast series asking the question, can art save us? I'm starting the first national and international conversation about courage and curiosity. What do these qualities really mean and why does it make a big difference to our mental, societal and democratic health? I talk to award-winning and diverse artists across the arts to explore these qualities in their lives and work, both to inspire and for us all to learn. I'm exploring why we need these qualities to help change the global epidemic of mental illness, loneliness, polarisation of our communities and even global conflict. If the arts cultivate courage and curiosity, I'm asking the question, can art save us? And my guest today is Bobby Brown, a creative producer, artist manager and rising architect of community and culture with equal access based in the city of Brighton. He's a game changer in youth work, supporting creative projects, including music and radio, that changes the lives of disadvantaged and excluded young people. He describes himself as a dream weaver, a bridge builder and an optimist, and as someone who relied on youth services growing up. We're lucky to catch him today just before he goes to Glastonbury with the rap duo he manages, Frankie Stew and Harvey Gunn. He's already been behind R&B singer Ellie Ingram, a household name, and I'd say the Hall of Fame has already got his name on it, and he'll no doubt be busy opening more doors when he gets there. Hello, Bobby. Wow. What an introduction. That Yeah, that was incredible. <laughs> I, yeah, wow. Thank you, Paula. Thank you. I- I'm glad you like it. I love writing my introductions because you're all such massively interesting people. I'm very lucky to talk to all of you. I feel lucky to just, yeah, be described as such, you know. Um, I think, yeah, you put that together really well and sort of said it better than I could myself, I think. Uh, oh, bless you. Well, well, let's talk more then to, under- to understand that. Um, Absolutely. And actually picking up on that description of yourself as a dream weaver, a bridge builder, and an optimist. Those are lovely qualities, but I mm. doubt they're necessarily easy, you know, when no, you're faced no. with so many different challenges. And I just wondered where your energy comes from to be so open. I I I don't actually know where the energy comes from, to be honest. I know it it permeates throughout my family, both on my mum and dad's side. Um, I I know that perhaps for me it's closer to the surface than than other members of the family. I think other other members maybe suppress it or channel it in different ways. Where I'm a little bit more not necessarily chaotic with it, but I'm quite um, uh, spread far and wide with the energy. And um, I think one of the the main factors of that, I suppose, or the main factors of, of my use of energy is that it it seems to be directed towards authority or power structure or infrastructure a lot of the time or a lot of my focus or attention for whatever reason wanders towards that. Um, and it it's at, at the sort of, I suppose, micro and macro in, you know, just wider society, um, but then also, you know, real community level to even, you know, friendship groups and, and relationships. I'm, I'm really interested in sort of all dynamics of human interaction and connectivity and, you know, yeah. 
Well, this is what I thought was interesting when I was reading about the fact that you were actually eight years old when you moved to Brighton and school was difficult. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that's probably very interesting that maybe that's what's behind your openness or your motivation now. And you talked about being the most engaged in many ways, but deemed disruptive. So I was just interested in what was going on for you at that time. Well, there was quite, I, I, I often sort of revisit this and, you know, reflect, I suppose, but I think it actually started earlier than when I moved to Brighton. And, and this for me, again, it's like before I was even necessarily conscious of what I was doing. Um, my mum was at university in Reading. Um, I was at school in Reading. I think I was five or four or five years old. And I was, I wrote piss off basically on chalk in chalk in the playground on the on the um yeah on the floor and you know my mum was called in and um you know they they applauded me for for my uh, correct spelling but you know obviously it had to be it had to be um addressed <laughs> so it, it feels like I've got this sort of rebellious nature um sort of again instilled within me from before I can even remember or, or find the root cause of but I think what i've what i've discovered particularly over the last couple of years i suppose is that it it is rooted in in in, in from the heart i suppose ultimately and it, it does come from a good place i think brighton has in its sort of liberal nature um it's provided me with a good backdrop of like reference points and resources for the arts the community and the charity sector which I've been really inspired by. And again, that forms part of my identity. Um, My mum used to work for Brighton Housing Trust, um, which was based out of a building called Community Base, which housed a lot of community organisations and still does to this day. Um, And I used to, you know, I used to go and sit in the offices at Community Base after school sometimes, you know, waiting for my mum to finish work. So I've, I've always had that around me, you know, I think naturally I've, I've i've always been creative um but i think I, I again i don't know if it is just brighton or my parents or even my grandparents my both you know both my grandparents sort of studied sociology at or both my grandmothers should i say studied sociology at university um so there's there's that aspect within me you know um so it's not just brighton but brighton is a massive part of my identity ultimately and i think it's it's not it's a part of my identity that isn't necessarily recognized broader than brighton brighton has a reputation for certain things that don't necessarily represent me so um or others you know or any of my peers so i'm quite interested in not necessarily changing the narrative but you know voicing our story as well so it's pretty amazing that at age five you were already beginning your very creative let's say creative protests (laughs) (laughs) this is it This this is it yeah And what's interesting is um, creativity was in some way around you. And Mm. 
I wondered what you were leaning towards. You, you did say you were actually expelled from, from school, I think, in yeah. year nine. And I wondered maybe what wasn't being harnessed or what kind of creative outlets did you have then? Or did that really begin with some introduction to, to youth services? Um, I, I guess so. I, I feel like that was the creative outlet or art form that I identified with or, or felt represented me best. I guess it's somewhat culturally um, in sort of looking at what was happening in London with the grime scene and things like that was that that was the 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 culture popular culture youth culture at the time for me growing up and i i recognized myself within that and you know was part of a, a small scene in brighton that was making that music out of youth clubs you know and and you saw some some incredible talent um sort of yeah grow from from that space you know jordan stevens from rizzle kicks um Okay, uh, Harley, you know, Frankie Stewart and Harvey Gunn, they were in that space. Uh, Hobby Stewart, um, you know, even Rag and Bone Man was a sort of product of that environment to an extent. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's, I, I think I, I sort of lost the point, lost my point a bit, but, you know, I think youth services and being expelled from school, um, creativity, it didn't, my my creativity didn't necessarily exist within the curriculum or typical spaces um, because that was a little bit too restrictive. I I had too much energy and active energy um, to be sat down for an hour and and you know let play for an hour a day, you know, sort of thing. I, I had far too much. Um, energy to give for for that environment to sort of suit me so I did thrive in more of the I suppose physical um environments but I, I I've I've also had some you know I suppose one of the the first impressions or first good impressions on me was in school from a drama teacher at the second school I went to after getting expelled um she really, you know, saw my potential and, um, you know, instilled confidence within me. Um, uh, so I, I, I'm, I have, I, I think a lot about sort of the school environment and education and um, how someone like myself, um, how, how you, how you make it less difficult for someone like myself, I suppose, um, to thrive in, in an educational environment. Um because yeah, a lot of my, a lot of my, um, yeah, I suppose skills have been nurtured outside of that space. I guess. Yeah, it's interesting how we can all thrive differently in completely different spaces, and and actually being expelled was that interesting in terms of was it frightening or was it useful even? It it, it depends at what point you're looking at it from i think in the immediate it was frightening it was isolating it was frustrating um it was quite a difficult sort of um yeah it's a very difficult period i suppose and 
I did some reflection on it over the lockdown. I actually like looked through the school reports and and um, you know the reports around the exclusion and the letters that my mum was writing about um, you know even when was this you know over fifteen years ago now, but there was a over representation of of black and mixed race children getting excluded from school even then, and um, a lot of my mood or energy at that time was you know it was because I was going through puberty one, but also there was a, I think there was quite a significant um, factor around sort of black history being taught at the time and my sort of frustration with that narrative. Um, And also the fact that I was probably one of two, three max in a classroom at any given time, you know, with a brown face being taught about, you know, you're the slave, these are the perpetrators. And it was a very difficult, um, very difficult sort of period I found. Um, And I don't think the school quite knew how to manage that ultimately. Um, So, yeah, I I think... Yeah, being expelled, it's it's again, it's part of my identity. It's part of who I am now. And a lot of the things that I was criticised for then, I'm sort of celebrated for now, which is really strange. <laughs> um, yeah. But that's, yeah. you know, I, yeah, I often, I often sort of reflect on that ultimately. And so, yeah, well, that, it, it's part of who I am. And it was, you know, it, you could say it's sort of destiny or whatever to... Um, yeah, as part of my story or whatever, but it's yeah, it, it's definitely not something I I ignore or or pretend didn't happen. You know, I love the fact that despite the horror, if you like, of being punished for raising your voice about identity at school, mm. that cut to a few years later as an adult you're helping calm and steer a crowd of 100,000 people at a Black Lives Matter protest in Brighton, actually assisting the police, you know, who I think even hand you a megaphone, um, covered in the local press. I mean, isn't that amazing, you know, expelled to become that kind of community voice? How did that feel considering, considering that's the struggle you came from as a child? Oh, it was it was extremely overwhelming, to be honest. Um, and it's still sort of this, the ripple effects of it is, is still ongoing. You know, the fact that we're, we're talking about this now, you know, I think two years later, um, this really interesting sort of period. I wasn't actually going to go to the protest. I I just felt I don't know. I I just had a feeling, you know, that I was like, oh, I I don't know if I want to go. I can feel this. It's it's evoking something within me that like it, maybe it was rooted in sort of the school and you know all of this and sort of bringing up a lot of trauma or triggering a lot, triggering a lot of things within me. Um, but my partner was going down there, um, and a lot of friends were going down there. So there's a lot of you know messages around like oh let's meet here, let's do this in all the groups that I was in. But I went down on my scooter um, just sort of to observe. Um, and yeah, I, I think there, this was the time of sort of the Winston Churchill statue conversation in, in sort of the mass media, you know, um, and sort of the protection of English identity versus, um, 
yeah, Black Lives Matter, I guess. Um, so I went, I went down to to a memorial in Brighton, and actually just I could sort of almost preempt what was going to happen um, before the the march or the protest had even started. Um, so I went over to to the the guys at the war memorial and just started engaging with them and having a conversation, just saying, you know, introduce myself and just explain that my mum's um my mum's dad was you know in the war and you know sort of found a, a point of, of mutual interest or commonality I suppose and sort of built from that so I, I planted the seed very early just again I don't know if it was consciously or, or sort of subconsciously but I could almost preempt what was going to happen um and then the march started and sort of did a lap of of the city centre and as it was going towards the memorial, it came to a halt for about five or 10 minutes. And that's when it was almost like, Oh, I know what's happening here. Um, it, it was kicking off and, you know, there's just a lot of shouting and abuse and they were split by, so it's like that the protest was in the road. And then there was like, there's the other sort of side of the road, which is blocked off by a fence. And then there's the memorial on the other side of that, which is also fenced off. So there's like a, a fenced barrier in between, basically. So it wasn't physical. It was just verbal. Um, but obviously it, br- it brought the protest to a halt. So I sort of made my way to the memorial and in between. And it was get- it was heating up. You know, the whole protest then started to to change path and go round the other side of the memorial to the point that the memorial was surrounded by the protest and it could have got incredibly incredibly violent and yeah horrific I don't you know I dread to think what could have happened but the cameras were there primed like everyone else knew that this was a possibility as as well um but yeah I suppose on the basis that I'd I'd already gone and and built the relationship with them I sort of put myself in the middle and told the protesters to keep it moving this wasn't the purpose of the protest you know don't let them sabotage the message and all of this sort of stuff um and then on the other side you know I said you're well within your right to protect to protect what you believe is your identity and all of this sort of stuff but let's not provoke because at the end of the day it's not gonna it's not gonna reflect well on anyone um so it was just a bit of sort of mediating and peacekeeping I suppose but yeah the 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 police did give me a megaphone they allowed me to stand on top of their um you know uh, police van and guide the protest essentially and and keep it moving and um and they continued to to, to well, not that we worked together, but beyond the protest, I suppose I was um, contacted by the chief superintendent of Sussex Police, Nick May, at the time, um, via Twitter, strangely, um, and <laughs> uh, he contacted me and, and was asking for help within, you know, the community with young people, all of this sort of stuff. Wanted to, I don't know what he wanted to be honest, but that that was just quite an overwhelming period of time, and um, again just was like I yeah I was sort of on autopilot for three three hours sort of peacekeeping and moving this protest past this potential um chaotic scenario so yeah it was wild to say the least (laughs) yeah yeah it's interesting that you use the word autopilot because I was gonna say um that was a frightening 
situation, you know, when the tension in a crowd can explode any second mm, that could have mm, gone one mm. way or the other. And that must have taken a lot of courage, um, even if you didn't perceive it as courage. I mean, it's amazing that you could, you had such wise insights to to talk so calmly um, when I imagine your your head was racing or or inside the level of responsibility you actually suddenly had with a crowd yeah. of a hundred thousand people was was huge. Is that what it was like? You were kind of racing inside and calm on the outside. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if I was even calm on the outside, to be honest. I think I was quite animated, but I was quite clear with my instructions, if you know what I mean, or, or clear with my communication. It, it wasn't it wasn't calmly communicated. It was quite um, urgently communicated um, and critically communicated in certain instances, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, I, I was racing. I was on autopilot. I didn't feel uncomfortable at any point necessarily I felt like it it was almost like a duty you know it was almost like I don't know it's almost like um, how I imagine a firefighter when he sees a fire you know um yeah yeah uh just a kind of an automatic response an instinct yeah. to do the right thing it seems to me that it is all about voices you know that you're elevating yeah. community voices individual voices and and artist voices you know the musicians you work with and in relation to the probation project you've been involved in uh yeah. represents yeah i noticed um somebody stated hip-hop is especially about unheard voices yes. and is that is that really why you've ended up you know, working with rap artists, working in that hip hop space. Is that what's meaningful to you about that culture? Yeah, I think, I think culturally, again, it's always been a, a, a voice of, of the times or traditionally, I think we, we're, we're sort of fighting for that voice a little bit at the moment. It's, it's been drowned out, but it's all, there's always been, you know, figures within the culture that have shifted culture or, um, evoked conversation culturally and it the hip-hop is is the most influential culture in the world in my opinion um and you know in, in England we have our own version of that and I think we again I think we're somewhat struggling to hold on to that you know for a number of reasons um you know uh, I think graffiti visually is a massive part of hip-hop you know, um, dance, obviously music, um, music, I mean, poetry, there, there's so many factors to hip hop, even the sort of style. Um, again, I think that you see it every day, everywhere, but people don't necessarily know what to attribute it to. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that is naturally, yeah, part of my identity as well and who I am, um, culturally. I don't know if it, I don't know if I, necessarily identify it as hip hop though um but yeah i think yeah you you could very much say that a lot of the values and um themes of hip hop have have been an ever present in my life yeah and and in terms of those values 
your identity and Brighton. Mm-hmm. How have you navigated that? Because, you know, Brighton's a diverse city, but I think it's probably predominantly perceived as very white, middle class, liberal, um, you know, it's ridiculously expensive, but at yes, the same it time, <laughs> it's got shocking levels of very visible homelessness. It's become a city of of real extremes, yeah, yeah. you know, in terms of wealth and poverty. Yeah. Um, how did you navigate, if you like, your identity, your cultural values, your interest in that kind of music scene? Um, when that's what kind of dominated you, if you like, growing up? Yeah, that's a, it's a great question. Um, I'm still navigating it, ultimately. Like you're saying, the rent prices are, are just ridiculous. It's very hard for me to exist in, in Brighton, for you know, in, in, in more ways than one, ultimately. Um, and a lot of my peers have been priced out and um, a lot of my peers have... Again, London's more expensive, but like you said, in terms of like cultural sort of relationship, perhaps more people related up in London or found a home up in London more so than they would in Brighton. But for me, I'm that's something I'm trying to develop down here um, on the basis that I've seen the potential of it. I've seen it at in a at a small scale, I suppose, or. Um, yeah, not at its weakest. That's not the wrong, what am I trying to say? I've seen it. I've seen what it can do on, on sort of minimal resources. And even those resources have been stripped away um, in Brighton. So for me, navigating was very difficult. Again, it is promoted as a diverse city, but it's not as diverse as London or Manchester or Bristol or even, you know, like the Leeds Birmingham, Nottingham, anywhere like that. It promotes itself as being diverse and inclusive, but it is very white middle class. Um, I think even even my mum, you know, I was really fortunate, I suppose, my mum having these conversations with me early about sort of class and, um, you know, community and values and things like that. So I think, again, that forms a lot of my identity and I think Brighton also uh it's like it's it's the flower bed for that to grow as well um but a lot of that is being lost or, or priced out you know in the arts community and, and charity sector so it's increasingly hard for me to exist but it's even harder for the next generation of me's and creatives to exist and that's a big fear for me as well um yeah yeah i mean as extreme a word as this sounds, there's a kind of apartheid mm, going mm, on mm. because... Oh, I, I don't think that's extreme at all, Paula. I think, you know, you have... I think that there's um, some t- t- statistics to suggest that you have some of the top 5% of wealth in the country existing in Brighton and some of the bottom 5% existing in Brighton. You have some people within three miles of the beach that have never visited there because they don't, they, one, it's, they can't afford the, the travel or, you know, it's too expensive when they are down there. They don't, they don't see themselves reflected in it. They don't have any ownership over it despite, you know, contributing towards it ultimately through taxes and whatever else. But that, I, I don't think an apartheid is a, is a strong word. I don't think, um, <sighs> 
what's the, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, you know, when they when they come and just invest in spaces and take over. What am I talking? What's the word I'm looking for now? What like gentrification? Gentrific- that kind gentrification. Of but I think even I think gentrification is too soft a word. And I think apartheid is probably um, it's that's around the energy that we need to be um, using at the moment because people need to understand or recognise the severity of what's happening. I think um, because yeah, I, I yeah, I don't. I think Brighton is losing a lot of its cultural identity and what makes Brighton what it is. Yeah, and when you relate everything you were just saying to the fact that youth services in the UK over the last 10 years cut by 70% is mind-boggling. And are we really surprised that antisocial behaviour is soaring, that mental health issues, depression in young people, suicide is soaring, knife crime is soaring. And that's not about proportioning blame on those people. That's about recognising very cruel and harsh choices that have been made, choices to actually create deprivations. There are no spaces. How How do you feel about that? Because... I imagine you witness how that translates as direct harm. Yes, yeah, I I, I witness it firsthand. Um, sometimes on a you know yeah on a weekly basis. You know the the studio that I'm in is housed by a music charity called Audio Active that do a lot of work with the local community. Um, they they have a service called Room to Rant. Um, which is a space for young men. Uh, I think young women are invited as well, but there is also young women um, only spaces, but they facilitate space for young men to get things off their chest and, um, you know, support, support them in critical situations. And they have been credited with saving a number of lives this year alone. Um, They are surviving on very minimal resource. Um, it's yeah it frightens me it worries me um i feel again with with the fact that i am aware and can observe that i feel a responsibility to try and support where i can um and yeah again i suppose becoming a father as well is is a massive it's a massive um consideration sort of for for what sort of environment is my son going to grow up in and um I, i'd want to say that i tried to do something about it or i did do something about it you know um yeah it um genuinely is frightening when you think about lack of space and of course um i'll mention um for the listeners um you know the reason uh, I met you was, of course, we attended the Brighton University event during uh, Brighton Festival, Structures of Community, which was inspired by Mawa al Saborni, who I have interviewed in this season too, yeah. very joyously. Amazing. amazing. Um, completely amazing because, of course, her emphasis is about community harmony, building for peace yeah. and building for hope. What has always stood out to me, and even as far back as when I was involved in work in Manchester, uh, mentoring young people with a number of social barriers, economic barriers, et cetera, et cetera, 
there's also an added burden, if you like, that when you're that person coming from a place of discrimination, particularly when it's actually structural mm-hmm. in our society, there's that added burden of having to be braver, if you like, having to be pioneering, having to be the change. And whilst all of that is very commendable, it's really hard. Yeah. 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 It's exhausting. It's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you manage that from your own point of view, you know, that you've had to already or continue even to struggle with mm. that from your own childhood to now. And also mm. with the youth community members you work with and even the artists you manage. Yeah. It's, um, again, it's a constant battle or, or, or constant, um, it needs constant, constant maintenance ultimately, you know, again, personally, if I'm not in a good space, that has um, consequences outwardly, you know. Firstly, at home with my partner, my child. Secondly, with my artists, you know, beyond that with the wider community that that I offer service to. Um, And it's, it's something that I'm aware, I I self-care how important it is. Um, And it's something that I've, it doesn't necessarily come naturally to me. But um, it's something that I, it is critical for me to instill ultimately because the consequences otherwise are, you know, it, it, at points critical, yeah. Yeah, and would you say that this all leads back to the creative pathway, that creativity offers an opportunity for exploration, curiosity, openness? Are these... Are these ingredients for for self-help even? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think um, creativity, I I think it was Otis that was talking about creativity and art in in many different forms, you know, socially, therapeutically, um, you know, amongst the community and your interaction with the community. Um, And I think that's where my creativity... um, thrives you know is when i'm facilitating others creativity or others growth um it that's that's what you know that's the fire that burns within me sort of likes to light other fires um and there's a there's an int- like when you talk about sort of curiosity and creativity it reminds me of um the the seven c's of self leadership which I don't know if you've heard about. It's a, it's a, so there's a Dr. Richard Swartz who's um, got a sort of theory called um, internal family systems, which is sort of the idea of um, uh, it's a it's a healing, I suppose. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's with with the purpose of healing, but to help people reconnect with their sort of core state ultimately and and their self and their purpose. And the seven C's of self leadership, I think, are confidence calmness uh creativity uh clarity curiosity again courage compassion um and then i think connectivity or connectedness i think he calls it but connectivity and i think if if people feel that strength in those areas 
they'll often feel fulfilled in their life or purposeful in their life. Um, and for me, that's something that I only, you know, was sort of researching or looking into over the lockdown period in sort of, you know, isolation, doing a lot of self-reflection and, and shadow work, as they'd call it, you know, just really sort of getting into the nitty gritty of things and, you know, looking at the man in the mirror. Um, and that, that you know, that for me, I suppose what you asked, yeah, it, it just reminded me of that. Um so yeah, creativity, courage, curiosity, they're key factors that I think we should be instilling from a young age, you know, and and arming and tooling our youth and ourselves with this ammunition to to take on the world, which at times and a lot of times, particularly recently, is really difficult. You yeah. know. No, that, that's um, that's that's fascinating. That's a fascinating reference you know that that you've cited and just drilling down a little bit more into that one of the reasons you know I wanted to explore courage and curiosity is to encourage us all to look again at what do they really mean because mm-hmm. so much prejudice comes with language so for example curiosity killed the cat I completely disagree with that there's a longer the phrase in... to that, isn't there? Yeah, the, w- yeah. What's the last sentence? Because, I can't remember. Sorry, Toby. Yeah. Because my my argument is is the cat wasn't curious enough because curiosity killed the cat is basically saying be risk adverse, don't explore, don't do this, mm, don't mm, do that. Mm. It's very very narrowing. For example, it's a it's a prejudiced phrase, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. And courage, we understandably associate to heroics but normally it's on that scale of Mm. of great heroics Mm. what I'm interested in from your point of view and in all of the youth work you do is would you say you're in the business of recognizing wider acts of daily courage and that might be taking part showing up trying something new entering a new space particularly where you don't feel you really belong yeah yeah, I think um, I I'm naturally quite emotional, um, and I've I'm you know I I've been credited with being quite emotionally intelligent. I think not necessarily out of choice, but by force, you know, just to recognise what is this I'm feeling so heavily and so intensely, you know. Um, but I think to at times I've been critical of of myself and the emotion that I feel. Um, I think, again, taking on this sort of this internal family systems model, I guess, and and looking at that emotion with curiosity and compassion, and saying, what is what is this trying to teach me? What is this saying to me? Is this is this a compass for me? Um, has been really helpful, you know. And often, when I'm feeling the most nervous or the most uncertain, is when my courage is is relied upon i suppose and and necessary to to sort of fulfill that task or or to take on that task after that there's a feeling that you can't quite describe um i suppose a sense of achievement um or or pride or um i don't know you just you just feel like your your chest sticks out sticks out a little bit more and your chin's a little bit higher and you feel uh, i suppose pride a bit a bit proud <laughs> um not too proud but just okay i've i've achieved something here that that was 
initially daunting. Um, and I think if you can continue to conquer yourself um, and, you know, yourself as an opponent at times, but as a, as a, um, as the, you know, your, your best opponent, the opponent that's going to teach you the most about yourself. Yeah, that's a really interesting way of putting it. And <clears throat> excuse me, it's a really interesting way of putting it because when you reference the idea of an opponent, it's it's about that vulnerability, isn't it, that you mm, may be experiencing mm. and therefore have to dig deep into finding your own courage. But I'm interested in exactly what you're saying, that after facing that challenge, whatever it is, and you have a sense of pride, it's a sense of self-respect. And that's why I'm interested and concerned that if we don't maybe all look again at what courage means or give ourselves Mm. credit for small acts of courage, which are however big in our own lives... It's also it's almost a deprivation of a way of supporting our health, our mental yeah. health. You yeah. know, w- would you agree with that? Absolutely, I think it is. Arguably, it's um, it's vital for our existence and our evolution. You know, to the point that we're regressing otherwise. Um, and I think it is worrying again if you look at it sort of socially how arguably docile we are and and have become in a lot of instances um you can put that down to a number of reasons again i don't think it's helpful to blame anyone but i think ultimately the the consequences of that are for me quite worrying um yeah so again i definitely encourage courage (laughs) um but how to do that at scale or at mass is is quite difficult for that message to permeate i suppose um or i think i think that's if you can find a message for everyone to unite around and be you know feel like this is worth fighting for then you, you've cracked it haven't you really so this might be quite a quite a big question in some ways because i'm interested mm. in if you can remember what maybe would stand out to you now as one of your earliest first acts of courage, even if you were five, I quite like the piss off statement. Um, Mm -hmm. And also what takes courage now? Yeah. um, I think it's, what's interesting is that when you're young, you don't necessarily see it as courage because you don't know there's any opposition to what you're doing. Whereas I think as you grow, you recognize, okay, there's going to be a potential negative response to this, or there's going to be feedback that I'm not necessarily going to enjoy, but I'm going to do it regardless. Um, I think when, when did I, I don't know. I think I've always been quite courageous. I would say, you know, it hasn't, when when did it get the first positive response maybe was when I was just doing things differently and, and being a change maker and uniting people around different ideas and, and sort of events um, and things like that. And I suppose, you know, entrepreneurialism takes a, a degree of courage right? and belief 
uh, and confidence and, um, you know, walking in sort of full faith um, requires courage. And I think, you know, going sort of courage and faith are two things that are sort of lacking, you know, um, in society and culture at the moment. We are, yeah, I think I think faith is a is a is a massive component to to that as well, and and sort of lack of lack of courage. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's interesting you you mentioned uh, entrepreneurialism because I thought you had no doubt been referred to as an entrepreneur or fitting that psychology or that profile because you're someone who knows risk and quite often that can translate as therefore not being afraid to take risks so for example even working in the music industry it's Mm -hmm. a tough game there's lots of unknowns Um, and it's quite often a role that isn't predefined there's certain things that you know you want to do but it's also Mm. a lot of invention and a lot of imagination a lot of making things happen so do you feel you live and work in the risk space and rely on that courage that you have from that point of view too yeah yeah absolutely but I think it's the risk has been it's been forced I suppose because other spaces they don't I don't they don't exist for me. They don't, I don't exist within those spaces and, and never have. So I've had to create my own infrastructure, you know, and the, it's actually more of a risk to conform for me because that leads to a, a, a depressive state ultimately. And, um, you know, it's not good for my well being. Um, that's a, it's a, that's a, a betrayal of self for me you know and and I suppose that's you know going back to our point of self-respect it's it's like disrespectful to myself to to ignore what I'm feeling and how I feel I think it, it for me it's been a case of maturing and regulating emotionally and being able to express in somewhat of a calm way um but yeah, I think I've become, I've definitely become slightly more, well, yeah, more articulate, I'll say, but it's, it's definitely something I'm still working on, you know. And in terms of being able to develop, you know, whether like you were saying, I'm becoming more articulate, you know, articulate how you want to mm-hmm. develop your own thoughts, your own understanding, it brings us mm. back to this critical need of space or cultural spaces where in fact you use the word in an interview where we can congregate and that's a real deprivation because unless we can congregate and exchange Mm. how do we practice things like curiosity being open to each other how do we practice things like courage by having a go at taking part in something how how critical or how much of a crisis do you see the issue of cultural spaces that offer access literally to everyone in view of the economic barriers that are so high particularly in a city like Brighton where everything is just so expensive mm-hmm. yeah it's it's critical you know it is quite literally safe space um 
with with the economic squeeze, it's crime increases, domestic violence increases. You know, we've got parents at work, both parents at work in some instances, full time. Um, you know, children raising themselves. Um, you know, under no guidance or supervision, spaces that previously used to guide and observe and nurture don't exist. Um, or if if they do exist, there's a a payment gateway, or or you know, um, uh, yeah, it's 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 at a critical point, I think. And there's there's evidence there's evidence to show what happens with, without these spaces. Um, we can't continue to ignore that evidence. I do think we need to build a new infrastructure and a new model um, that. It, these things need to be of permanence. They can't be temporary. Um, they can't come and go. Um, they need to exist as part of societal structure. Um, you know, it's it's vital for a healthy civilization, in my opinion. Yeah, and is that what projects like Represent and Platform B Radio are doing? You might want to talk a little about that from the listener's point of view who may not yeah, know about them. I think they... Perhaps not so much in a space. I mean, we occupy spaces temporarily, um, but and and the impact of those projects is massive, considering how little resource we've got to work with and little space that we've got to work with. Um, Platform B has some, you know, short-term spaces, you know, two-year leases, year-long leases that, uh, in a lot of instances, given in kind. Um, particularly in Brighton, when you're talking about rent prices, it's unaffordable. Um, for you know community projects and and projects that that have i don't know real social impact ultimately you know um i i think they're both more about empowering voices really though i think platform b naturally as a broadcasting um network and radio station is about empowering voices particularly youth voices it's a youth-led radio station um and you know they're they're still in their infancy, but they're they're doing some really really great work around the city. Represent is the the newborn brother of Misrepresented, which has has um, you know been doing incredible work uh, set up by Bex Fiddler and Joe Bates. Joe Bates was actually someone you know who's like a guardian angel for me when I was uh, you know seventeen eighteen. Helped me get funding to buy my first digital camera, which you know was uh, I was doing a lot of photography and, and filmmaking for you know my early career, and I put a lot of my success down to Joe Bates. And to be somewhat working closely alongside her now is like it it, it feels really full circle. Um, so yeah, you know I feel like I've got a, a duty or responsibility to projects like this on the basis of of what they did to me but I also think with better resource you know these projects could quite literally you know change the world um and yeah Yeah. that that's you know that that's the level of ambition or or the level of necessity um that that sort of I have to 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 kind of deliver this sort of work ultimately yeah What, what would you say are the transformations or the key transformations you're witnessing you know when you when you can recognize there's a possibility here to change the world yeah you're working with people that are often disadvantaged or even excluded mm-hmm. what do you think is the main transformation you witness once they've been offered 
a way of being included in something mm. and quite often a creative space. Well, I think quite often the point that you're meeting these people at is a dark place. And just to be able to show them light is is massive for them. Um, and you quite often, you know, hear people say, oh, this has been the most impactful thing in my life. This is, you don't know how much you've done for me. Um, and I think it's it, potentially they're at a crossroads in their life, you know, and um, this, I guess in a capitalist system, this, there's a, there's a, I think there's something called the return on social investment, right? <laughs> so this is, you see an incredible return on social investment in that you've got these people re-engaged in society and feeling positive and optimistic and contributing. Um, again, it, it is very difficult for a lot of these people to navigate, navigate, navigate the current framework. But I think just to inspire something within them to the point where they become more courageous and curious and, and compassionate even, you know, um, to say there, you know, there actually are no experts at the moment. <laughs> That's something I'm really coming to realize. There are no experts. I think we're in a time right now that is just like nothing we've we've seen before, or maybe we have, but nothing on record that I think we we've seen before. And you know, I do think there is a a real shift, um, and there is so much potential for these projects to exist and contribute to society, and um, you know, empower communities, and just yeah, really like change the world. I I just I can't see anything beyond that ultimately. And are these values relating to um, another project I've heard you mention? Uh, if project's the right word, um, you've referenced new society, but making it clear mm. you're not throwing that around like a Tory slogan of build back better <laughs> or the new normal, yeah. considering that looks like recession and a cost of living crisis. So, right, exactly. um, yes, yeah, so how would you like <laughs> to um, distinguish your reference to new society? I, I, I don't know. I think it's um, the new society is a vision. It's that's all I can describe it as, and I, I've tried to find it. I've tried to find the the right term for it. Is it is it a is it a community interest company? Is it a charity? Is it a collective? Um, I. Yeah, I still I still can't quite define it. Ultimately, I, I it's a vision that I have and a lot of other people share as well. It's not my vision; it's a vision. Um, and the more I talk to people about this vision, not everyone agrees with it. You know, a lot of people don't necessarily want to detach from their current version of reality. But I think myself and a lot of my peers and a lot of my colleagues envision something better than this and greater than this and you know i think in your introduction calling me an architect is like <laughs> you know that's for me is uh, is an honor because that's what it, in a traditional sense considered the the one of the highest levels of creativity right but i think a, a community architect or a social architect is 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 of it's almost of it's of real high consciousness, I think. It's it's of real high consideration and awareness, but it, it's it's something that can only be achieved collectively. 
Um, it's not something that should be the responsibility of one person. So with the new society, for me, it's a case of, yeah, a vision, but something that I want to unify people around um, and, and build a workforce of, of you know, intellects, administrators, labourers, you know, voices, um, artists, uh, carers, you know, um, yeah, it's got so many different strands to it and I'm still trying to find the vocabulary for it at the moment, but I haven't quite. Um, mm. But it's rooted in 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 life, in reality, in in you know, the, the real spirit of, of of the pure human, I guess, and, and how we can exist and thrive collectively. Um yeah. it's something I really believe in. Yeah, yeah, because architects and architecture is a really important word isn't it particularly when we refer to it as social architecture uh, as Mm -hmm. well Um, and of course Mara Elsaborni has written and spoken brilliantly about inhumane architecture how you know architecture that isn't designed for integration uh, in -hmm. our communities obviously literally builds in conflict and Mm. everything you were just saying about those ideas and values around the vision of a of a new society would be responding to that too and Mm -hmm. it seems a lot of work is needed for more of us to realize we should all be able to have a voice and be able to influence and be able to be part of that social architecture is that where a lot of your focus is invested to empower those voices yeah it is very much so it's very it's where my my focus is naturally um yeah it naturally goes but i suppose it's hard for me to afford the attention that i want to give it you know or justify the attention that i want to give this work because it isn't financially rewarding you know um and that's the nature of this current capitalist system and you know we i suppose democracy in in its current state isn't so isn't fit for purpose um so that's again a lot of a lot of sort of consideration or my thoughts could go towards a wall. I can see where this is going. You know, this is, this isn't looking good currently. We need to change path. Um, so yeah, a, a lot of my focus, a lot of thoughts go towards that. I don't have the, I, I don't, I don't necessarily, I, well, I won't say I don't have the answers. I have ideas, you know, I have ideas that I need to work on and that I need help with and that I need challenging on. Um, but yeah, I have an ambition that I believe is is achievable. Um, yeah, w- with the right sort of resource and um, workforce behind it, and you know, this is something that can be achieved locally, nationally, you know, globally, whatever. But I'm focusing on uh, what I I believe I can affect uh, quite immediately, I suppose. Yeah, and recognising that, that actually you do have some power to do that because, of course, a lot of what we're talking about is about power shift and power struggle, isn't it? 100%. And, you know, I think um, a, there's an incredible, incredible person called Andre Anderson uh, who's based in London 
who runs an organization called Freedom and Balance. Um, and, you know, Andre would be brilliant for this podcast as well. But um, Great. Andre talks about reclaiming space and language and authority, um, you know, reclaiming power and, you know, I think he he said authority has to be authorized, you know, um, and what he's done, you know, talking. He, I'm just so inspired by by freedom and balance and Andre, but he set up um, an art college on his local estate and is the head teacher of the art college, um, and uh, it's a, it's a publishing house and and you know the 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 members of the publishing house are the authors of their estate and they are the authority and you know they're just reclaiming language and um reclaiming power uh, and and taking it and not asking permission for it because it's it's theirs it's their right um so yeah, I, I think sort of the dissolving of power, the decentralization of power, um, I'm really, really interested in. I'm really interested in sort of the Web3 space and how we can use technology to enhance our reality, you know, not hide away and bury our heads in a virtual reality, but use this technology to enhance our current reality. I think the possibilities are mind blowing. I don't even, I, I don't think we're using technology anywhere near, um, uh, yeah, the, the best that we could ultimately. Um, so yeah, I think reclaiming of power, um, sort of restructuring of society again, still democratically, but sort of far decentralized um, to how it is now. I think is really important. Otherwise, the consequences are quite dire. To be honest with you, yeah, exactly. There's a real urgency. Um, I believe yeah, so, as, but and that's why yeah. I think it's important to you know when we talk about language to to choose your words carefully but courageously yeah yeah beautifully said and just highlights again you know um just the importance of looking at meaning and perceived meaning and deconstructing meaning and reviewing meaning Mm. like this example of courage and curiosity and starting to think again about how these meanings and words apply to us in our lives Mm. um you know is democracy really applying um you know let's look at that again am i is this democratic enough am i being invited to participate enough you know yeah Yeah. Uh, you've come up with some very interesting references that i'm definitely going to go and chase after i I can send you more if you'd like (laughs) yes yes please Um, yeah, yeah so um as ever i'm Racing the clock. This is always a complaint in every interview I do because I I try and only steal guests for an hour as opposed Mm -hmm. to days. But um, it does lead me actually to a quote. Um, Everything you've just said leads me to a quote that I think um, would really help us come to a conclusion in in this particular Mm. interview. Um, Mm. I'll quote you. No one is coming to save us but ourselves. Together, unified, energised, supported by one another. And I really loved that. And, of course, in relation to the series question, Can Art Save Us? 
is what you're saying recognizing that need of solidarity and and ways of building solidarity which can quite often be through having cultural shared spaces Mm. absolutely (laughs) yeah solidarity (laughs) unification you know shared values i think we're in a real divisive time at the moment i think we're focusing on our differences far too much um yeah, I think we need to rebuild the web, um, rebuild the social thread, the social fabric um, collectively. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's urgent. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know you literally have to run to Glastonbury. No, um, you, I, no yeah. yeah. I, I can't thank you enough for making this time. I really appreciate it. I knew you were a voice I wanted to invite. And, and thank really... you for inviting. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Because I think through things like this, I, I find my voice more, you know, and um, I, I just feel honoured to be a part of this sort of, yeah, congregation of voices. Uh, it's, it's just delightful because I'm hoping in terms of the values you've shared, these seasons are in effect a collaboration, a collaboration of voices, including the listeners, the listeners mm, who mm, may mm. comment, who may continue to listen, who may be inspired. This is a collective experience. We're all in it. It's not a passive Absolutely. action. So I can't thank you enough. And I hope you have a brilliant time at Glastonbury. Oh. Thank you so much, Paul. I really appreciate that. And thanks for your time today. Okay, I'll speak to you soon, hopefully. Yeah, excellent. Take care. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.